You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. the Exodus. Um, This will be a a 16 sermon series as we walk through uh, both the narrative and the law given to us in Exodus. Exodus is the second book in the Bible directly following Genesis, and so, uh, so appropriately it picks up right where Genesis leaves off. In Genesis, we see that God creates the world and all the cosmos, and he placed his people in a beautiful garden, and he dwelt with them there in the garden. But an evil serpent comes into the garden of God's people and deceives them so that they fell away from the ways of God. At this time, sin and death entered into the world, and humanity was corrupted. But in that very moment, in Genesis chapter 3, God promised his people that one day there will be a man who will have victory over the serpent. This man will come from the womb of a woman like Eve. And all that follows in the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 to the very end of Revelation is about how God not only reverses the failures of Adam and Eve in the garden, but establishes a new creation even more glorious than Eden. Throughout Genesis, if we were to read it, we would see God beginning to establish his people Israel as the people to whom and through whom he will reveal himself to the whole world. He promises Israel that he will be their God and that they will be his people. He promises them that they will be a nation which will bless every nation in the earth. And toward the end of the book of Genesis, the people of Israel find themselves entering into the land of Egypt going to join an Israelite who's living there named Joseph. Joseph entered Egypt having been sold by his brothers into slavery, but God rescued him from slavery, and eventually Joseph became Pharaoh's closest confidant, his wisest counselor. And Joseph, the Israelite, the former slave, is now effectively ruling over Egypt when the Israelites move in. In Genesis 46, when Israel is about to go into the land of Egypt, this is what God says. He says, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. So Exodus begins with Israel in Egypt. But when it begins, Joseph is no longer alive, and there's a new pharaoh on the throne. And this pharaoh knew neither Joseph nor the God of Joseph, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. Israel went into Egypt with the promise that God would be with them, the promise that he would bring them out. He promised them that in Egypt he would make Israel into a great nation, Yet the first chapter of Exodus sets up the tension for the whole book. Israel no longer has a voice in Pharaoh's palace. 
They're no longer dwelling peacefully, but now they are hated and oppressed. Formerly rulers in Egypt, now they are slaves facing genocide. They've gone from slaves to rulers to slaves once more. But what we know is this, that the God of the people of Israel, the God of the Bible, always keeps his promises. And the book of Exodus is about how God kept his promises to the people of Israel in the land of Egypt. It begins with a gripping narrative and transitions to God giving his people a law. And in both of these things, the promises and purposes of God are revealed beautifully. Ultimately, the Exodus is an in-depth case study in the way that God saves, historically and eternally, individually and corporately. The Exodus is our family history as God's people. Through it, we can understand our place in the world as God's people. The writers of the New Testament use the Exodus narrative as a means of interpreting and showing meaning in the work of Jesus. And so as we read through the Exodus, we will better understand our Savior, Jesus Christ. After all, we are an Exodus-shaped people. We have an Exodus-shaped Savior. We are doing Exodus-shaped work in a world which desperately needs an exodus. And so my hope for us over the next 16 weeks is that we would see the exodus as our family history, that we would allow it to shape our identity and our understanding of the world around us, and that we would allow the exodus to also be our instruction. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that God orchestrated all that occurred in the book of Exodus for our benefit, that we should learn from it. So let us learn and be changed by God's word as we look into the Exodus. Before we jump into our text for the day, let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself gloriously and beautifully and powerfully through your spirit as we spend these next 16 weeks looking at the way that you save, the character that you have, the heart that you have for your people. I pray that in these 16 weeks and even this morning by your spirit, you would begin shaping us into a people who have been marked by the exodus and preparing us to be a people doing exodus-shaped world in a neighborhood and in a city which desperately needs the power of your exodus. Would you equip us by your word and by your spirit to be a faithful people? Would we be the people to whom you reveal your glory and through whom you reveal your glory. Pray that you would illuminate this text for us this morning. It's in your son's name that we pray with faith. Amen. Today's text, which Reed read, covers almost all of the first two chapters in the book of Exodus. But really, it's broken into three narrative portions. And so if you're note takers, this is where... This is where you can help find an outline. 
first narrative por- portion is the state of Israel in Egypt. And then we'll discuss the birth and early life of Moses, and then we'll discuss Moses in Midian. These two chapters lay the groundwork for all that God is going to accomplish the rest of the way through the book of Exodus. So once again, we'll, we'll have the state of Israel in Egypt, the birth and early life of Moses, and Moses' journey to Midian. Beginning in verse 6 through 22 of chapter 1, we'll see that it tells us much about the conditions of the people of Israel in Egypt at the time that Exodus begins. The first thing that the author tells us is that since Israel has moved to Egypt, they have continued to multiply in numbers and in strength. It seems that God is indeed keeping his promise to make Israel great in Egypt. God's people were being obedient to their call to multiply and to fill the earth with his glory. And so just as Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and all the fathers of Israel in the past were called to multiply, so it is the mission of our, our, our church today. It is the mission of God's people as the church of Jesus Christ to be a multiplying people, making disciples of Jesus, filling the earth with the glory and likeness of God. And that is precisely what the people of Israel are doing in Egypt. As Moses, the author of Exodus, continues, we learn that there's a new Pharaoh in Egypt. And he saw that the Israels were strong. He saw that they were multiplying and growing in numbers. And this is what he says. He says, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Pharaoh is terrified of God's people. Though in previous generations, the Israelites have dwelt in Egypt as peaceful neighbors, as participants in the royal government, the new king is afraid of these Israelites. He's afraid of them growing in numbers so that they might rise up and destroy Egypt. So Pharaoh makes two important decisions. First, he decides to make the people of Israel slaves in Egypt. They were to be treated as property, forced to do hard labor, provoked to be a people of misery. And the second decision that Pharaoh made is he instituted a decree for genocide. He wanted not only the Israelites to suffer as slaves, but he wanted to wipe out the entire race of Israel by commanding the midwives of Israel to drown all male children in the Nile River. Now, the Nile River was the key source of life in the desert of Egypt. Yet Pharaoh has made it into an instrument of death. If we were to read Genesis or Revelation about the beginning and end of God's story, we would see in both of those places a river of life is running through God's kingdom. But in Egypt, there is a river of death. But even as Pharaoh sought to destroy the people of God, the text tells us this. It says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. 
See, God promised to make Israel great in Egypt, and he also promised that they would be slaves in a foreign land for hundreds of years. And in a way that only God can orchestrate, both of these promises are coming to pass simultaneously. Both great in multiplication and strength and faith, yet oppressed as slaves in a foreign land. The people of Israel continued to multiply. They continued to grow. They continued to spread abroad throughout the geography of Egypt, primarily through the faith of some Israelite women who were midwives by vocation. The people of Israel knew that God promised to bring them out of Egypt and to make them great, but these midwives didn't think for one moment that God intended to bring his promises about through a passive and compliant people in the eyes of evil. On the contrary, the midwives knew that faith in God's promises never leads to passive compliance with evil. True faith leads to action and boldness, and these women were surely true of true, full of true faith. Really, the first two chapters of, of Exodus are a case study in the heroic acts of the women of Israel. Remember, Earlier when I said that the whole Bible is telling us how God is recreating a new world better than Eden by reversing what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. Well, if we looked at Genesis, we would see that the story of Eden is about a serpent who enters God's garden and deceives a woman, bringing about slavery to sin and to death. And if that is what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are about, Exodus 1 is an anti-Eden. Egyptian pharaohs wore cobras on their crown. They were serpent kings, worshiping a serpent goddess. And so Exodus 1 tells us that the people of God are in a serpent's desert rather than an oasis of God's rule. But even as the serpent tries to continue to bring about sin and death and slavery, even as he tries to thwart God's plan for his people to multiply, it is the women who now deceive the serpent so that God's people can be made great and fruitful despite adversity and slavery and death. The tension and the stage is set for what the rest of Exodus is going to show us is accomplished. But maybe even more important than that, what we see in this first section of chapter 1 is that our theology of God is in action. God promised the people that he would make them great in Egypt. He promised that he would bring them out of Egypt, even though they would be enslaved for hundreds of years, And the first chapter of Exodus shows us that God is keeping all of his promises. We don't just say that God keeps his promises because we think that's a good thing to say about God. We say it because we have books upon books of God revealing himself as a God who keeps his promise. He is a God whose promises come to pass. We also see that he's a God who cares for And we'll see to it that his people flourish, even in the midst of dark adversity. The church 
which we must understand is the new and true Israel, for we are God's people. The church is also called to multiply and make the name of God known in all the earth. We're called to bless the nations with our love and the news of our God who has sent his son. But the last 2,000 years of church history show us that this fruitful multiplication does not come without adversity. Ever since Jesus sent his people out from Jerusalem at Pentecost, which we discussed last week, the people of God have been enslaved and murdered and imprisoned and flogged and beaten and rejected, made to be social outcasts. They've been poor and hungry and helpless. Even so, God's kingdom has continued to advance through the power of a promise-keeping God such that today, in Houston, Texas, 2,000 years later, you are hearing the truth of this same God who kept his promises in Egypt. We can take heart as God's people. We can press on in hopes of fruitful multiplication in the midst of a post-Christian, post-truth, Western society, knowing that God will guide us and make his church great because he is great. And because he has been throughout all of history a great God who keeps his promise. And Exodus is just a glorious example of that. It's just a glorious example of the ways that the God of history cares for his people. In the southern and eastern most, most parts of the world today, Christians face much more physical opposition than we do here. But it is there that the church is maybe flourishing and thriving most of all. Disciples are being made. People are being baptized. Churches are being planted because men and women are trusting in a God who keeps his promises. They're trusting in a God who has sent his son who is worthy of of serving. God's kingdom has been since Egypt advancing and it continues to advance in love and in power and we should faithfully and joyfully participate in this work of multiplication. It's no surprise why our strategy at Sojourn has always been centered upon multiplication through making disciples, multiplying parishes, and planting more churches. This is just the way that God's people spread His glory throughout the earth. And even though at times it may feel like we are in the serpent's desert, or in a fruitless wilderness, we are not a people without hope. We have the opportunity to invite people out of the desert and into God's garden of grace, out of the river of death and into the river of life in baptism, out of slavery and into freedom, out of a wilderness and into a land flowing with milk and honey. Chapter 2 of Exodus moves on from the narrative of the people as a whole to a personal, character-driven narrative within the larger story of what's going on in Egypt. It is in chapter 2 that we are introduced to Moses, who, apart from God himself, will have the most primary role in the whole book. So we'll get to know our main character here. Moses' story is, is compelling and moving from the beginning because he was a, a son born into tragedy. An Israelite son in a time when the sons of Israel were 
ordered by law to be drowned in the Nile River. Destined for death by the serpent, yet Moses was chosen for life by God. Orchestrated through the faith of his mother and a midwife. And in verse 3, the text says this of chapter 2. It says, when his mother could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And the sister stood at a distance to know that what would be done to him. This is a deeply moving story. A story of a young mother making an unbearably difficult decision to give her newborn son up for adoption to God, but more physically to a river by sending him in a basket down the river where he was supposed to be drowned. While her older daughter watches along with fear and hope, wondering what might become of her infant brother. It's a moving story of a boy in the midst of a world marked by death and sin and violence being put into an ark to pass through the very waters that are killing his kinsmen. I say ark because the Hebrew word for basket is the same word used in Genesis to describe the boat that Noah built to pass through the flood. It would seem that Moses is being presented as a new Noah passing through the water. And maybe he will lead God's people to safety on dry land and a new creation like the first Noah did. Just as we saw the midwives being presented in chapter 1 as the protectors of the sons of Israel. So the women of Israel are also the protector of Israel's sons in chapter 2. A boy's mother and sister are protecting him from an Egyptian regime that would seek to kill him. The people of Israel knew that God promised Eve that it would have a son from the womb of a woman who would one day be their deliverer. So the women of Israel did not see killing their sons as an option, regardless of how dangerous it might be to disobey Pharaoh and his army. After all, one of these sons could be the one. One of these sons could be the one who will crush the head of the serpent, who will deliver the people of Israel, who will give them victory. And so with every birth of a son, even with Moses, the thought was probably, maybe he's the one. Maybe this is the one that God has promised us. And as we go through the book, what we'll find out is that Moses both is and is not that son. Even in the midst of emotional turmoil, in the midst of violent oppression and opposition, the women of Israel put their hope in God's promises. As I was reading this text over the last couple of weeks, I just realized how much I had to learn from these faithful women. I imagine all of us do. In the midst of deep opposition, in the midst of great trial, great emotional burden, putting their full faith in the promises that God has made them with no foreseeable sign that those promises are going to come to pass anytime soon. As the story continues, the story of Moses, Moses is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. 
though her father is a murderous xenophobe, she seems to be compassionate. She's moved to care for this Hebrew orphan. What we see is that it's not just the women of Israel, but all of the daughters of Eve that God is using in his plan to protect his people. Now this child will be living in the palace of the one who hates his brothers, enslaves all his people, and wishes he were dead. Consider how strange this story is beginning. This story of of Moses is almost as if the daughter of Hitler had adopted a Jewish boy and raised him from a concentration camp and moved him into Berghoff. But it is in the house of Pharaoh that Moses is given his name. Which essentially means, I drew him out of the water. I think this is beautiful that Moses is being named for being drawn out of the water in the very house of the man who decreed that he should be drowned in it. For he arose on top of the river that the Pharaoh wished he was sunken to the bottom of. really a resurrection story as Moses passes through death and is resurrected, given the name of a victor over death in the house where death is the law. Moses' life is surely foreshadowing of the life of our Savior, Jesus, and that is a theme that we will see over and over and over again over the next 16 weeks. If, the chap- if chapter 1 showed us that God cares for his people as a whole, chapter 2 begins to show us that he also cares for them individually, one by one. It isn't just that God wants the overall numbers of his people to increase. It's that he cares desperately for every little boy and mother in Israel. We have a God who rescues us from death. We have a God who makes us to sit on the seat of princes when we were destined to be slaves. Moses' rescue through the water is not just a historical event, but it teaches us about the way that God saves us. If we read Ephesians 2 in the New Testament, we'll see the Apostle Paul telling us that though we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God gracefully saves us through the work of Jesus, giving us life so that we can serve him. In our baptism, we are drawn out of the waters of death, out of the river Nile, emerging with eternal life and honor and freedom from slavery to sin and to death. As we move to verse 11 of chapter 2, we see that it picks up when Moses is fully grown. Elsewhere, we would see that it's 40 years later at this point, and the people of Israel are still being treated just as bad as they were when Moses' mother first put him in the basket. There's an account of Moses going for a walk and seeing his kinsmen working as slaves, And he sees one Egyptian being especially harsh toward one of his brothers, and he just can't stand it. And so in fury, with with a hope for justice, Moses looks around to make sure that he wouldn't be seen, and he kills this Egyptian, and he hides the body in the sand. The next day, we find out that Moses realizes that he has been seen in this act of murder. And so he knows that even though he grew up in Pharaoh's palace, that that there would be no grace for him 
in Egypt as one who is killing Egyptian taskmasters. So he flees to another land called Midian. And in Midian, Moses provides water for sheep. He's given bread by a generous father, and he ends up gaining a bride. Moses and his new wife have a son who they call Gershom because it sounded like the word sojourner. This part of Exodus is really easy to pass over. It's easy to overlook. But what we should know is that the Bible never gives us any narrative that isn't serving the purpose of revealing God's glory to us, revealing his purposes to us. And so what we see in this part of the text is that Moses is acting rashly to kill the Egyptian, but we also see that Moses loves justice and that he loves his people. We learn that Moses spends 40 years in the land of Midian. And in this time, he is being prepared for what God is going to use him for throughout the rest of his life. Moses gains experience providing water in a wilderness outside of Egypt. One day, his flock will be the people of Israel and not just sheep. But in that day, he will once again be in a wilderness outside of Egypt providing water for a flock. We see in this text that Moses is relying on the generosity of a father to provide him bread And one day Moses will rely on the generosity of his heavenly father in a wilderness to provide bread from heaven. What we see in Midian is that Moses also becomes a father to a sojourner. And as the leader of Israel in the Exodus, he will be the father to a nation of sojourners. All of this is to say that from his passing through the water and his infantile victory over death to his 40 years in Midian, Moses is being shaped by the Exodus, by Exodus-type things in order to be prepared for his ministry as the leader of Israel in the Exodus to come. Moses is being made into an Exodus-shaped person. Similarly, we, the church, are an Exodus-shaped people. It's our family history, but it's also our spiritual reality. We've passed from slavery to freedom, from death to life, from the kingdom of the serpent and sin to the kingdom of God and his glorious Son. The Exodus of Moses is a beautiful event of God's salvation, And God has always gone to great lengths to free his people. The Exodus shows us that, and it points out the ultimate redeeming work of God in the life, death, and resurrection of his son. While Moses was drawn from the Nile, the river of death, Jesus, our Savior, was drawn from the grave of true death. While Moses avoided the death that he was born into, Jesus experienced the death that we deserve so that we might be spared. But even before the climactic event of Jesus' life and his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus was being shaped into an Exodus-shaped person. When he was born, he had a story much like Moses. 
There was a wicked king in Israel who wanted to kill him and the sons of Israel desperately. But Jesus' family fled from Israel to save him to where else but Egypt. And when he returned to Israel, he went on to redeem the people from slavery, not in Egypt, not slavery from an evil pharaoh, but to redeem them from slavery to sin and death and sorrow from the same serpent king who lied to Eve in the garden. As we have been shaped by the exodus of Jesus, we are also like Moses in Midian, being prepared for exodus-shaped work. We are called as citizens of God's kingdom to dwell in the midst of a people enslaved and oppressed. Our work is like Moses in that it is work of liberation, work of justice, work of hope and preaching good news. We're called like Moses to lead people by the words of God into life, out of the grips of death. And church, we can do this because we know that God cares for us. We know that he keeps his promises, most notably because we have proof in the risen and ascended King Jesus. Because of Jesus and the promises that we have from God in him, we will be fruitful. We will multiply in faithful obedience. We will be part of turning the Egyptian deserts and desolate wilderness of the world around us into a glorious new kingdom, a glorious new garden of God, and we can invite people to experience its prosperity, not prosperity of silver and gold, but of the riches of God's eternal love of blessing and honor and life and forgiveness and peace that has been gained for us through the offspring of an Israelite woman named Mary. The offspring who was promised in Genesis chapter 3, who was the redeemer who crushed the serpent's head once and for all. So as we begin the series called Shaped by the Exodus, let us live into being an Exodus-shaped people. After all, the Exodus is an in-depth case study in the way that God saves historically, eternally, individually, and corporately. The Exodus is our family history, and through it, we can understand our place in the world as God's people. The Exodus is written about in the New Testament and used as a means of interpreting and showing meaning and power in the work and life of Jesus. And we can better understand Christ as we grow to understand the Exodus. We are an Exodus-shaped people with an Exodus-shaped Savior doing Exodus-shaped work in a world and even in a neighborhood which desperately needs an Exodus. Let's pray. Father, we on behalf of those in our community who are enslaved to sin and death and sorrow cry out on their behalf like the people of Israel cried out for your deliverance. Would you deliver them? And would you empower us by your spirit and by the work of your son 
through the, the blood shed on the cross, through the, the glorious power of the resurrection, through our hope in him being an ascended king, would you empower us to do Exodus work? To lead people out of Egypt and into a land flowing with milk and honey. To lead people out of death and into life. Would you be a God who orchestrates redemption and liberation? Who works in power? Who allows us to pass through water on dry land that we might be revealed as your people? lowly and humble, yet cared for and given seats of honor at your table? And would we be quick to invite people into that? Would we, like Moses, become furious with people who are oppressed around us? That we might liberate them from their oppressors, be they addictions, sin struggles, disease, would you allow us to be a people who through the work of your Son and the power of your Spirit see to it that people are liberated, that chains are broken, and that your gospel of grace and life and truth would be shining so brightly in our neighborhood that it cannot be avoided so brightly in our city that it cannot be avoided. And would you make us a multiplying people? Multiplying as we make disciples, as we multiply parishes, as we plant churches, so that the city of Houston cannot escape your glory or your grace. We pray these things in faith, knowing that you are a God who keeps promises, and you have promised that these things will come to pass. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.